Welcome. This is the James Cancer Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today our guest is Dr. Daryl Gray. Daryl is a gastroenterologist and a colon cancer specialist, and he's also the deputy director of the James Center for Cancer Health Equity. And that's what we're going to talk about today, health equity, or rather the lack of equity, which is also known as the cancer disparity issue. And by disparity, what we mean is the cancer rates are often higher for minority groups for genetic and for socioeconomic reasons. The diagnoses come at later stages when the cancers are harder to treat. Fewer African-Americans and other minorities undergo screenings, get vaccinations, and enroll in clinical trials. And overall, the death rate is higher for minorities, especially for black men. Daryl and many others at the James are working hard to turn this around in Columbus and beyond. Thanks for being on the podcast, Daryl. Thank you very much for having me. This is uh, a great opportunity for all of us. Great. We're really looking forward to what you have to tell us about cancer disparity. I just gave a brief explanation about it, but take us a little deeper into this complicated and, and very important topic. What is it and why does it exist and how can we turn it around? Yeah, health disparities, um, that term really refers to a difference. Uh, difference in, in the cancer world, we talk about incidence or new cases of cancer, as well as uh, mortality or death rates as it pertains to cancer. And differences, these differences can be based on race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, disability, etc. And uh, we know in the world of cancer that there are many disparities. And one of the things that we've noticed, um, particularly as it pertains to our work in Ohio, is that uh, we see quite a bit of disparities as it pertains to race, race and ethnicity uh, differences. And um, I, there's, there's much work to be done in this, and I'm fortunate to be able to work on a team, a team of doctors, nurses, staff people, volunteers, program managers, patient navigators, financial counseling personnel, and many others, researchers, who are dedicated to reducing and eliminating these disparities. So what when you say disparities, like give me an example. Give us an example of you're a colon cancer specialist. Sure. Are the do certain groups get colon cancer at a higher rate? Absolutely. Um, when we look at the rates of colorectal cancer, whether it be incidence rates, like I referred to earlier, or death rates, African-Americans have the highest. So African-Americans have the highest death rates uh, from colorectal cancer and the highest incidence rates. So albeit we've made over the past three plus decades great progress in um, decreasing the mortality rates from colorectal cancer decreasing incidence rates from colorectal cancer for a wealth of reasons, whether it be improved screening programs or otherwise. But we know that there's a huge gap in looking at those who benefit most. And it appears that African-Americans benefit the least um, because they have the highest death rates and and the highest incidence rates. So going back to what colorectal cancer and Mm -hmm. African-Americans, what do you think the reason is that the incidence rate is higher? Well, when we Uh, particularly look at these um, differences, these disparities, one thing that becomes blatantly clear is a difference in what we call social determinants of health. And when I talk about that, that's a public health term, and it really refers to um, where people uh, work, live, play, and pray. And so when we look at differences uh, uh, in regards to this social determinants of health, Again, we look at it because we know that people spend the most most of their lives outside of the hospital, outside of the clinic, and they actually spend most of the time where they're working, where 
where they're um, worshiping, where they're growing and raising a family. And when we look at particularly African-Americans in the population, particularly here in Ohio, uh, we know that um, certain factors, whether it be economic status, joblessness or employment, unemployment, whether it be um, poverty, whether it be educational opportunities, whether it be racism, structural or otherwise, um, those factors play a role in health outcomes. And we see that um, in cancer outcomes. Now, for example, back to colorectal mm-hmm. cancer, it can be prevented with screenings at the age of 50 or people with um, family history earlier. So are you saying that due to uh, uh, not having health insurance, uh, poverty, that African-Americans and perhaps other people at the lower end of socioeconomic uh, group, they just can't afford to or don't know about screenings? And that's why their cancer is not caught in the precancerous stage or the early stages. Well, certainly you hit on multiple things. I mean, Yes, environment plays a role. Um, if, you know, I live in a neighborhood where I don't have a safe sidewalk uh, to walk on, I don't have a playground where my kids can safely play, I can't exercise, certainly I'm not getting the physical activity that may reduce my risk for getting colorectal cancer. If I don't have a grocery store in my neighborhood and all I have are um, check cashing places, liquor stores, gas stations, little bodegas, uh, I may not have access to fresh fruits and vegetables uh, that may reduce my risk for getting colorectal cancer. Conversely, if I am in an environment where all I have are fast food uh, establishments, uh, I'm going to have increased risk, right? Because I'm getting more fatty foods. I'm getting exposed to those things that would increase my risk for colorectal cancer. Um, similarly, if I am unemployed and I don't necessarily have access to insurance, I may not be apt to get screened uh, for for colorectal cancer or any other cancer for that matter. I may not be established in the healthcare system and have a provider who knows me well and who's going to recommend that I get screened. Um, so it, you know, there's so many different variables that play into you know what we're seeing as far as outcomes and whether or not people get screened for colorectal cancer. Wow, it sounds like all those facts, little not little, but all these things add up together and just create the odds of getting colorectal cancer or, or other kinds of cancer much higher absolutely than, than without perhaps having the uh, health care and and you know I, I mentioned cancer but these themes are kind of ubiquitous throughout other health conditions if we look at cardiovascular yeah, disease if we yeah. look at diabetes um, you know if we look at the risk factors for cancer they're very similar to those for cardiovascular disease um, or diabetes and so um, I think you know, these are extremely important because when we look across the nation, what are the number one killers of individuals across the nation? It's these things, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer. And so uh, we need to um, be investing more, both um, uh, man and woman power, but also financially into the eradication of the disparities and addressing the social determinants of health that lead to some of these disparities. Yeah, just because you may not have financial resources shouldn't uh, mean you don't get good health care. Absolutely. And, and I was looking earlier today as, as I prepared for this, mm-hmm. I saw something from the um, NCI, the National Cancer Institute. Mm-hmm. It said that people from lower socio, uh, socioeconomic status groups have disproportionately higher cancer death rates than those with higher socioeconomic status. Um, and that socioeconomic factors include access to education, certain occupations, health insurance and living conditions, including exposure to environmental toxins, which is pretty much what you just said. So Mm -hmm. it's across the board. If you're 
in the lower socioeconomic group, uh, you are more prone for cancer, heart disease, diabetes. Absolutely. And so, as you eloquently put it, I mean, this is not just restricted to African-Americans. Right. Um, uh, you could be of any race, ethnicity, gender, et cetera, and, and be low income. And so, I mean, particularly as we look at some of our stakeholders and some of our patients and people with whom we interact across Ohio, um, and for example, people in rural Appalachia, you know, that's an area that is plagued with poverty in some areas particularly. And so we do see adverse outcomes, whether it be cervical cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer, lung cancer, uh, because of those uh, factors. Yeah, that's. I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, people in the, these groups tend to smoke more. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there they go, higher lung cancer. Absolutely. Again, I know from talking to you and others, some of these in Appalachia, there's no mammogram facilities. So how can you get a preventive screening? Absolutely. In some areas, they don't have mammogram facilities. Some, they may not have a primary care provider. Some don't have access to specialists. But that's why I think, that's what I think makes so, uh, our partnership uh, with those communities so valuable. Um, particularly where we have, whether it be physicians, nurses, research staff, program managers, community health workers, actually going to into these communities, going into these areas, building partnerships and relationships so that they know that we're not just there to um, hand a survey and leave or do some right. research and leave, but we're really invested. Uh, we're there in these communities to ensure that um, access isn't a barrier. Their lack of transportation isn't a barrier. Their uh, lack of finances isn't a barrier. Uh, we want to make sure that we're connected to these communities and can provide the people with the information and the resources that they need to live healthier lives. Well, yeah. Continue on that path and give me some examples because I know you personally and mm-hmm. others at the James have these programs here in Columbus, throughout the state, in Appalachia. Mm-hmm. What are some of the specific uh, educational screening mm-hmm. treatment programs that that you're involved in, uh, that James is involved in. I mean, I could talk about yeah. this for a long time, so you you probably have to stop me, Steve. Okay. But but um, some things that come to mind. One, we have an amazing Somali community health worker who works with us in the Center for Cancer Health Equity, and um, she kind of talks with uh, members of the Somali community to ensure that they're number one getting the information that they may not otherwise get. Uh, but that they're getting this information in an environment that is comfortable and that they can receive this information and then act upon it, that they feel that someone who can talk and communicate at their level, who understands them, who understands the culture, who understands some of the barriers based on their culture, um, and and can help to facilitate them getting the care that they need. I mean, and I can think of other examples uh, with our Hispanic community health worker, with our uh, Bhutanese community health worker, and um, even from my own personal experience, for example, in the African-American community, and um, building alliances with organizations such as the African-American Male Wellness Initiative, or building it with individuals. Um, who are doing outstanding work in the community, particularly in getting people to think about how they can lead healthier lives, how we can address barriers to allow them to do so, um, and also how we can make sure that we're putting faces with names, that you know, we as the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center aren't an ivory tower where people can't really touch us and can't talk to us. No, we, we're out in the community. We're boots on the ground, and we want to make sure that people know that. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Daryl to talk more about cancer disparity. Thanks. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. 
We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back with Daryl Gray. We're talking more about cancer disparity. And Daryl, I've heard about, but I don't know that much about uh, the PACE program that you're very involved in. What is it? So the PACE program is Provider and Community Engagement Program for Health Equity and Colorectal Cancer Prevention. And this is a program uh, that I lead uh, that was started in around March of 2015. And really the goal of this is to reduce disparities in colorectal cancer, plain and simple. And we do so through outreach and engagement of both community members, but also healthcare providers. Um, one of the most successful parts of this uh, program has been our screening Saturdays. And, and these are Saturdays in March, which is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, month, in which we really welcome and open our doors um, um, more so than any other time to those who are uninsured and underinsured to get colonoscopies for colorectal cancer screening. And um, I don't want to give the impression that we don't cater to uninsured and underinsured at any other time, but really this is a dedicated effort um, during March in which um, we have staff, we have financial counseling, we have patient navigators, doctors who volunteer their time and waive their professional fees, um, patient navigators who are really doing a lot of this just and volunteer and really wanting to help and ensuring we're getting folks in who need to get screened who have not previously either had access to it or just not utilize the access that they've had to get screened for colorectal cancer. How do you find these people out in the Columbus community that uh, and educate them that the mm-hmm. importance of a colonoscopy? How do you how do you find them? It's truly a team effort, and really that's that's the beauty of having boots on the ground regularly with our team from the Center for Cancer Health Equity is that whether it be from the neighborhood free clinic, whether it be from being out in rural Appalachia, whether it be uh, during an inflatable colon tour at the African American <laughs> Male Wellness Initiative, um, people come to us and we also go out and identify folks who need to get in. And uh, fortunately, we've been able to provide this service for um, over 150 people over the past uh, three plus years, four years. I'm curious of those approximately 150 people, how many did you find something concerning that needed some attention? Well, inevitably, almost every Saturday that we've offered this um, over the past, uh, since 2015, uh, we found numerous precancerous polyps. And over this time, we found one rectal cancer, and it was early stage uh, for which the patient could undergo treatment. So we know that this is making a difference. You know, every time that we remove a precancerous polyp, we're potentially saving a life. We're um, preventing that polyp from ultimately turning into a cancer. And so for us, it's really uh, fulfilling to be a part of this work. Yeah, I think that that I'm sure is part of your education is people, many people don't know that if you get a, a colonoscopy and you mm-hmm. find a precancerous polyp, it's easily removed, you won't get cancer. So is that sort of your first hurdle is educating people and it's like almost like a, 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 a light bulb moment for them that, wow, I didn't even know this. I got to do this. Certainly. It's, it's not only educating the community members. So like when we're out with our now uh, famous, I don't know if I should say infamous, uh, inflatable <laughs> colon. Um, it's, and like a, it's a 10, I've seen it. It's like oh, a yeah. <laughs> 10 foot long, eight foot high, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it's actually blow, large, up, blow up 
Coleman mm-hmm. model. Actually, you can, and they, 10 you can feet walk high the, and 20 okay. feet long. Oh, so oh, it's, wow. And you can, you know, <laughs> you can, we give tours through this, and it's amazing. When people first come up to it, they're like, is this a bounce house or something? Yeah. But <laughs> but you walk people through, and it's interesting to see the wheels turning, the mental wheels turning as they walk through. And they may start out saying, well, Doc, you know, I eat healthy, I run, I exercise. I don't see a doctor because I've just been so healthy, and I, I don't think I need to be screened. Well, the truth of the matter is, and as we educate them, most people who get screened and are found to have an early stage cancer never had any symptoms. And as a matter of fact, the purpose of screening is to identify these precancer polyps before people develop symptoms. And so that's the reason we do it. And so it's really fun to um, work with community members and, and help to educate them. But also, along the lines of education, we have to educate providers, healthcare providers yeah. as well, doctors, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, because we know that the number one predictor of someone getting screened is that their healthcare provider recommended it. And so we have a concerted effort where we go out into clinics and we annually offer what we call a cancer disparities conference here um, in in Columbus, Ohio, where we basically talk about best practices in uh, reducing health care and cancer health disparities. And so this has been exciting for us, but it's also been exciting for the healthcare providers in our communities who are interacting with patients from underserved communities, but also interacting with patients um, who, you know, sometimes could be hard to reach, uh, hard to get into our engage with our healthcare system. Now, I was at your last uh, disparity conference, mm-hmm. and one of the things that struck me that when I heard it, it was like, oh, this makes perfect sense, that some minority groups are have some concerns, some fears about mm-hmm. doctors due to things that have gone on in the past. And for that reason, they may not see doctors. They're leery about clinical trials. Mm-hmm. Like, give us a little of that history and how you sort of have to work through that. Well, certainly. And I'll tell you, you don't you don't have to go too far back to um, to experience or to hear of or to know of um, examples of when people were treated unfairly. I mean, that still happens today. Um, And part of that is what we call implicit bias, where we know that um, for some people, they may be more apt to get a recommendation that is kind of standard of care or they may not be talked to in a way that is professional and in which they can receive information. And so certain meaning a doctor may not think the patient they're looking at and talking to is going to understand what they're saying based on uh, ethnic, racial, educational factors. Absolutely. And and, and, and it's not, you know, implicit bias is not conscious. They're not consciously being discriminating or consciously being, for example, racist. These are kind of unconscious trained behaviors. And so we have, you know, at, at our hospital also have a concerted implicit bias workshop where we are dedicated to eliminating that as well, because that's a part of how patients receive care. But yes, certainly there are historical events that have dissuaded uh, some groups from participating in research uh, or for engaging in the healthcare system. And um, but I think more so than anything, a lot that has come from that historical information is is stigma. And I think stigma not always in a positive light because I think. Um, sometimes as researchers and doctors, uh, we may have the uh, preconceived notion that, oh, African-Americans, are, they're not going to want to participate in this trial or they're not going to want to um, get this treatment um, just for historical reasons. But the truth of the matter is, and the data shows us that um, given the opportunity, they do want to participate. And so I think it's not that um, certainly there is still some fear and concern. And so I think um, part of 
part of our job as clinicians, um, as researchers, is to make sure that we're providing information in a way that people understand it, that's clear, that speaks to them at their level. You know, I, I don't, you know, try to get rid of a lot of the doctor jargon, which can be difficult. But imagine, imagine you're a patient sitting there for the first time hearing that you have cancer. How much of this can you hear? How much of this can you process? And even after that initial discussion, you know, and, and you're coming in with a family member or a friend, um, it's, it's, it's a whirlwind that you're put in. And so the more information that you can receive that speaks to you at your level of health literacy, that speaks to you at your educational level, uh, that speaks to you also to maybe your cultural preferences, um, is important. And, you know, as a researcher and clinician, there's no way I can understand every preference from every culture and every um, background and people from nationalities from across the world. Um, but I can certainly find people who can help to be resources. And I can certainly do my best to try to understand what they want of me as their healthcare provider. And I think we all can do a better job of that. That's a great point. I hadn't even thought of that. As a doctor seeing patients, which you do, mm-hmm. the um, just the diversity of people you see must be pretty amazing. Absolutely. And that's also a wonderful thing about being here at the James is that we see people from all over the world. And um, whether it's someone down the street uh, from the hospital or literally someone who just flew in from Ethiopia, uh, we see a array of patients who come to see us for different reasons. And it's an amazing thing. And I think we provide the best care here at the Ohio State University uh, Comprehensive Cancer Center um, uh, that we can. So it's pretty obvious listening to you that, that you're in- incredibly passionate about this, caring. You want to change the direction. You want more. Uh, you want to reduce cancer disparity and have more mm-hmm. equity. Where does that come from? What is, I don't, I've mm-hmm. never talked to you about this. What is your background that got you into this profession and has mm-hmm. made you so passionate about um, helping people? Well, uh, interesting you ask. I grew up in a household where my dad practiced medicine. My dad practiced internal medicine in inner city Baltimore, Maryland, and um, saw people who couldn't pay him, Um, saw people who came from uh, an array of backgrounds, from very poor individuals to very wealthy individuals. And uh, the way he approached each encounter was no different. Um, He approached the person that couldn't give him a penny the same as he approached the person who was very wealthy. And he treated them each uh, with dignity and tried to provide the best care that he could to all patients. And really, um, um, that was extremely impactful on me um, as as his son, being able to see um, the, the impact he had on people's lives, both in sickness and in health in the community. Also, you know, my, my mom, as well as the overwhelming majority of members of my family, immediate and extended, are teachers. And so, um, really, I got my love for both science, um, patient care, and teaching from them. I feel like it's in, it's in my DNA. And um, I've also been able to see, growing up in inner city Baltimore, and then living in subsequent uh, cities after high school, uh, just the impact um, that uh, health has on people's livelihood. And it sounds very kind of simplistic and intuitive, but... You know, you don't realize um, how how bad or how valuable your health is until you get sick and how vulnerable you are when you're sick. And um, 
you know, I, I, I have appreciated through whether it be family interactions, personal uh, family members who've been hospitalized, who've passed away, um, what that means to be a patient and what that means to be a caregiver, uh, what that means to be on the other side as a provider, healthcare provider. So I've seen it all. Now, what so you your father was obviously a great mm-hmm. influence to go to medical school. What got you into oncology and and then uh, colorectal cancer and, and related cancers? Well, I was fortunate during my um, residency training to get exposed to gastroenterology. I what exactly is that? <laughs> so it's to put it simply, it's uh, gastroenterology is the study of digestive diseases, and okay. so a gastroenterologist like myself cares for people who have symptoms or conditions, diseases impacting the digestive tract. Okay, and colon cancer being one, and and really gastroenterologists are on the prevention side of colon cancer. We aren't the ones like the oncologists or and or the surgeons who are treating the colon cancer, um, but. You know, in med school, I thought I was going to be the future of cardiology. I really enjoyed (laughs) cardiology, and I hadn't had that much exposure to gastroenterology. And I went to my number one residency uh, ranked program for me, um, um, thinking that I wanted to be a cardiologist. And I learned early uh, with uh, the CCU, the Cardiac Intensive Care Unit, and being on the wards, that I liked cardiology, but I didn't love it. And I was fortunate to have um, doctors that I could shadow, who I worked with on the wards, who were gastroenterologists, who welcomed me into their clinic and allowed me to see some of the procedures they do, the patients they see. And I really fell in love with a specialist, a specialty, excuse me, and uh, really with the types of patients that I got to see, the interventions I got to participate in. And for me, it's 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 beautiful. I, you know, I finished, I went through gastroenterology training and toward the end of conclusion of my training, I said, you know, I still feel like I have some knowledge gaps here because I, during training, I started a, what's called a patient navigation program where I was literally navigating individuals from churches, African-American churches predominantly into getting into the healthcare system. And then, so getting a primary care provider, but then also getting screened for colorectal cancer. And through that kind of small program, I recognized that I needed more information or more knowledge in regards to public health and health policy. How can I influence policymakers? Um, how can I translate what I'm doing into policy, you know, at the local, state, national level? And so I did a health policy fellowship in Boston and at Harvard through what's called the Mongan Commonwealth Fund Fellowship. And it was an amazing experience. And it's, you know, it's a program that really offers an opportunity to four or five uh, physicians a year where you spend a year-long intensive training, uh, not only in public health and doing the coursework therein, but more valuably, um, um, actually spending time in the field, learning about health policy, interacting with organization leaders, um, um, actually talking with those who are writing the policies, those who are leading healthcare systems. It was extremely impactful for me and my career. And uh, that kind of led me to my opportunities here at The Ohio State University. And it seems like you do have a lot of opportunities to use your public health side here in some of these many programs you've mentioned, the um, the screening. Absolutely. And there are so many other programs you're involved in. So give me – and we're going to wrap this up. But okay. give me one thi- – I know you have lots of things in your <laughs> mind. Dream. Like give me one thing you're going to get done in the next year or two. 
to reach out into the community that's going to be new and, and is going to help people? Well, one thing that I am working on and, and leading alongside um, the folks from government affairs, folks in various other specialties uh, and disciplines here at Ohio State, here at yeah. Ohio State, across the entire university, is we're really focused on healthy communities and we are really focused on health equity, particularly. And so I am working alongside uh, leadership from the different colleges of The Ohio State University, um, and from folks in marketing, folks in government affairs, folks who are providing patient care, researchers, to see how we can move the needle in uh, getting us closer to health equity globally. What do we need to do in our communities, whether it be in Linden, whether it be in the Near East Side? What do we need to do starting even at the school level from those who are engaged in health sciences academies in the Columbus City Schools to to older adults who are aging and who are um, uh sick and being readmitted numerous times to the hospital for chronic health conditions. How can we change the narrative of um, youth to our aging adults in their health outcomes? How can we improve health outcomes for the underserved and disparate populations we just recently discussed? How can we maintain health amongst those who are doing well? So I think, you know, one of the things that I hope to do to address your question more directly over the next year is to make sure that all the stakeholders whom we need to have at the table to make this happen, make uh, get them there and make sure that I'm doing my part uh, to move this needle, but also that we're holding ourselves accountable, accountable and have metrics that we need to a- achieve to ensure that we are headed in the right direction. And that's part of the exciting work uh, that I'm doing here at the Ohio State University in which the, the James is a, a big partner in. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing all this great information and your passion and your plans for the future. And we all wish you well in making this a better world for everyone. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.